I'm going to uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in um, just to kind of give you a, an idea of where we are. We're in Matthew five, starting at verse thirty eight, starting verse thirty eight through forty eight, and we've have been over the last three weeks looking at uh, the sixth antithesis, which is basically um, Christ showing us um, where the law says this, or your understanding at least of the law is this. But I say, and then he's correcting their understanding of the law based on his own authority as the Messiah. So that's where we are, and we're going to be looking at the last two today. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll read the text and, and jump in. Lord, thank you for, God, thank you for an opportunity to be able to come and, and worship with my friends and proclaim the gospel. God, I pray for myself that this moment, these few minutes where I get the opportunity to preach would not be something that I take for granted. Would you please, God, come and humble me. Fill me with your spirit and let all the words I say be yours. Lord, I pray for my friends now here that along with them you would convict all of our hearts, the places that we know that we need to repent and walk more in your spirit. Lord, I pray for those here who maybe have a working understanding a mental assent that there is a Lord, there is a God, there is a Creator, but they don't know Him. They don't know Him personally. They don't understand the Gospel. God, would You come and save them this morning? Would You pour out Your Spirit on all of us this morning? Let this be a marked day of difference in the life of Remedy Church that we can point back and say that day was the day that God showed up so thick in the room that we couldn't move it aside. We just had to fall down on our knees and worship and let our lives be affected by it for the rest of our life. God, it's our confession that we need you this morning desperately. We thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, starting at verse 38 through 48. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's basically, if anyone would sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it. Sa- you have heard that it was said, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends His rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And 48 wraps up these six antitheses with something just amazing. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
You, therefore, Christ is revolutionizing the, the Jewish hearers here by telling them, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, here's the problem. Let's just hear the problem. Let me read it to you. In 48, we're commanded by Jesus to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. There is no one more perfect than Him. But here's the problem. Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. How is it that we are to be perfect? How is it that we are commanded by God to be perfect? But the truth of the Scriptures, and if you're going to be honest with yourself, just like the Scriptures are going to be honest, you know that you're not perfect. As a matter of fact, you're not just kind of not perfect. You are not righteous. You do not seek God. You do not understand. You have turned aside. You have become worthless. You do not do good. No one does good. Today, what I want to do is kind of hold out to you the, the feeling of, this is more than I can handle. I don't know that I can handle... How am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to be perfect? Then I want to explain the teaching that Jesus has given in these two antithesis and then finally hold out to us the only hope we have. But we need to feel the weight of this. We need to feel the weight of being told we have to be perfect, but in the same breath realizing that we are not righteous, that we are absolutely outside of a knowledge of Jesus, walking down a decisive path towards destruction it is our decision to do that and yet we're told to be perfect that's a scary truth for us all because sometimes we'll think i'm not too bad you know i don't do all the bad things i uh i don't cheat on my taxes i've never killed anybody i don't commit adultery so i'm not really that bad but here we're told in verse 48 and really 48 is the summation of these six antithesis. I mean, Jesus has been building to verse 48 since verse 21, as he's been saying, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And then he tells them all, in verse 48, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, um, on the other side of verse 48, on the front end of the bookend, is just as scary of a verse. In verse 20, where he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Jews were very aware of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Everyone was aware of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And so what he's telling them here is not only are we supposed to have a mere outward action that conforms to the letter of the law. Instead, we need to have a heart transformation the only way that we are ever going to be perfect when the truth of us is that we are not righteous is that we have a heart transformed by the gospel. And this isn't some kind of new message that Jesus is just pouring out in this particular part of his teaching. We've already known from 423 that he went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he's, he's unpacking the gospel of the kingdom. He starts off with the gospel of the kingdom and the Beatitudes, explaining to them what the gospel is, the gospel, the good news, that Jesus came to die for us who were sinners, that he lived a perfect life for us, the life required of us, that he lived it for us on our behalf. He died the death and suffered all the wrath that was ours from Christ. And if we put our faith in him, 
all of his righteousness is given to us and all of the anger, all of the righteous anger that should have been given to us was put on Jesus. And now we stand before God completely righteous because Jesus is inside of us. He went around proclaiming this gospel and he taught it in the Beatitudes. And now as we get to unpacking these things, and I don't have time to explain them all, but he's telling them, as you're going through these things and as you're hearing the law in the, in the previous four, we've said, basically, here's the idea. You have a misunderstanding of, the, of what the point of the law was. And so I'm going to correct it. I'm going to correct it. It's not just about not being angry. It's about the fact that you are a murderer in your heart. It's not just about not committing the outward act of adultery. It's, it's because you have lustful thoughts and you're committing it almost daily. It's not just about keeping an oath. It's about having having a heart that desires to tell the truth as a Christian. It's not just about, well, I can can give a certificate of divorce because Moses said it. I can do it whatever I want. If she does anything wrong, I can just give her a, a certificate of divorce. Instead... It's about realizing that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And that's who we look to to take our cues. Because we're putting the gospel on display with our marriages. And now he comes to this point here in verse 38. And this is what he says. This is pretty amazing. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now he's referring to the law of retaliation. This was something that was given. We've heard it before, eye for an eye. Um, A few times in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, don't look them up. Um, But those are the places um, where um, the law of retaliation was given. Now, what had happened and the reason why Jesus is correcting it is because those um, those teachings on an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth were given um, for the government to enforce. So if I run over and um, I in some in some sense chop off your arm or something like that then instead of you coming back and saying, all right, you chopped off, uh, my, you chopped off my arm, I'm going to send my dad and he's going to go ahead and like swipe both your legs off. And then the next guy comes back and he beheads his dad. And like you can get, you can just get crazy really fast. And so these laws were given in order to not let things escalate. Instead, cut those things off very fast. And just whatever was done is done back. But these laws were supposed to be carried out. These, these um, retaliations, as you would say, maybe, um, were supposed to be done by the government. And what had happened is that it had escalated over the thousand years or so to where individuals were now carrying out personal vendettas to make wrongs right. Um, and individuals began enforcing these things. And so Jesus is saying, all right, um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And it's going to seem highly contradictory because he's going to say eye for an eye tooth for a tooth but i'm saying don't resist the one who's evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek it doesn't say slap them back on their right cheek instead it says turn the other to him also so it sounds like christ is contradicting what would be the scriptures of the old testament but remember don't forget christ is establishing his authority Like Christ himself is God. And as he's teaching this, he's not looking to the Old Testament and saying, I hope I have the right to kind of explain the way you've misunderstood it. As he's standing there teaching, he's saying, I'm God. And I have the authority to to help you understand that you've misunderstood the Old Testament. I have the authority to correct it. So he's giving out 
um, the right understanding of this. Now, as we look at 39, it says, but I say to you, and really this little second part, first half of 39 is the whole point of this little section. Um, but it says, do not resist the one who is evil. That is that is the the answer for us in this antithesis. Resist is actually a legal term. Um, Sinclair Ferguson that said you can actually substitute the word uh, resist with take to court. Do not take to court the one who is evil. Meaning this. Um, whenever evil is done to you, you have the right to declare that it be done back. But instead, don't do that. Don't declare your rights. Um, does this mean that you're not supposed to resist any kind of evil? This mean if someone does this mean like if someone attacks me and my family, um, am I not to, am I like to just willingly let them take me down as much as I can with my scaly frame, um, my t- small little frame? Am I supposed to just kind of let them throw me around even though they probably could? Because I'm not supposed to resist evil. I'm supposed to just let them do whatever they want. I don't think that that's the point of it. So if someone attacks your family, you're not supposed to say, they can't, they can't pull out uh, Matthew 5.39 and say, hey, Christian, 5.39, Matthew 5. You're supposed to just let me destroy you. Um, that's not the point of this. Um, instead, it's saying this. Here's the fifth antithesis. And this just means... Antithesis is kind of saying, this is your understanding of it, but I'm going to give you the right understanding. This is the fifth one. Christians should not seek personal revenge on others. Christians should not seek personal revenge on others. Do not resist. Do not resist the one who is evil. You can defend yourself, of course. But when we are wronged, we're not supposed to seek personal revenge on other people. And you may think, right now, you may be thinking, well... No problem, Fudd. I don't struggle with that kind of thing. Well, as we get into the application, uh, application part of this, I bet you do. I bet you do. Now, just as a little side note, um, this was something that happened this past week, and I, I feel the absolute need to be able to share this because it's rather extraordinary. If there ever was a person I think that deserved retaliation, it would be this guy. Um, this is just a funny little April Fool's joke, but it, I, this is great. Um, police in Maryland... Um, <laughs> are on the hunt for a perpetrator of an apparent April Fool's Day prank that left a man glued to a toilet seat at Walmart. <laughs> it just gets worse, right? I mean, the, I, the, as the story unfolds, as you read it, it just gets progressively worse and worse and worse. It says, if caught, the jokester who doused the seat with superglue at the Walmart on March 31st could face second-degree assault charges, said the police. Police, along with the fire department and the paramedics, police, the fire department, and the paramedics were called to the scene around 7 p.m. Um, there's just so many wrong things about this. They, there they found the 48-year-old victim who called for help (laughs) after realizing the sticky situation he was in when he tried dot, 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 and failed dot, 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 to stand up. I mean, can you imagine just sitting there and realizing you can't stand up? You're in Walmart. And help! Um, somebody... How embarrassing. Um, I'm stuck to the uh, toilet. Just... A side note, that's the point of paper on the seats in public restrooms. But anyway, um, it says he failed to stand up and leave the Walmart restroom. Now here it even gets more awesome or 
not so awesome for him. It took responders 15 minutes to remove the victim from the stall. When you're thinking, all right, finally, good news for this guy. But, no, (laughs) they were unable to disconnect the toilet seat from his body. (laughs) Meaning he had to take the walk of shame out of the Walmart as everybody looked upon him with the toilet seat stuck to himself. (laughs) Can you imagine laying there in the ER? So, uh, what happened? Well, Walmart... Um, anyway, it says that the victim was taken to the hospital where the seat was detached and it only left him with minor injuries to his buttocks. Police don't suspect that the victim was specifically targeted, but <laughs> that's pretty crazy if he was specifically targeted. But they, the incident was just a random prick and they haven't found any more glue, uh, glue-laden seats. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, this is an illustration here of, of an obvious, like, I, if I find this guy, I deserve retaliation. I mean... There's so many elements that need to be retaliated. He needs to take a walk of shame. He needs to have just so many things, right? But Jesus is telling us, and he's going to actually give us much better, four much better illustrations than that, uh, of where we could claim rights, where we could claim our rights, but instead of claiming our rights, um, he's going to tell us that we're not supposed to hold on to our rights. He's going to give us four illustrations. And the fourth one, uh, the first three is where we've been wronged. The fourth one uh, is necessarily, we haven't necessarily been wronged, but... Jesus, the master teacher, the fourth one is perfect because it transitions, transitions, that's a hard word, transitions us into the next section on love. So let's look at these four illustrations. The first one comes in night and 30, uh, where we are, where are, where are we? 39, Do, where we are. All right. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, just some things that we might not necessarily be seeing, by the way, this verse, just as a side note, um, heavily influenced the Russian writer Tolstoy. Um, and so he wrote this. And then Gandhi, who read Tolstoy, was very much influenced by his um, ideas of peace. Anyway, that's just a side note. That's just what they said in the commentaries I thought was interesting. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Um, the idea of being slapped on the right, on the right cheek, usually um, it means that you've been slapped with your right hand. And so to slap someone on the right cheek means you actually have to backhand them. And in, you know, first century, backhanding someone across the face was a sign of extreme insult. As a matter of fact, one commentator said that you could literally take someone to court if they backhand slapped you and the fine was more than an annual salary of a man. Like more than one year's annual salary. You're allowed to take them to court because the insult was so great. And so Jesus, so let's feel the weight of this, what Jesus is saying. If someone insults you to the point where you can... Um, be able to take them to court and get an, an annual salary, he says, turn the other cheek also. Not so you can go make bank and get two-year salary, but instead so that you can um, instead demonstrate what it means to be a humble servant of Christ. That a humble servant of Christ who has now put their faith in Jesus, who has been transformed by the gospel, does not seek retaliation, but they're willing to be humiliated. For Christ. Um, look at the next one. It says this, For if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. Um, commentators were saying that the cloak, the coat, in this, in this day and age, in the first century, were an inalienable right. In other words, um, they lived in the desert. People were always cold. It served as not just a coat, but almost a blanket. You had to have your coat in order just to survive. As a matter of fact, you could not take uh, someone's coat from them. He's, he's being 
Um, he's using hyperbole here, but if you wanted to take someone's coat, you actually weren't allowed to keep it at night. They had to, um, they could hold it during the day, but then you had to come back and actually ask for it at night, and they were, they had to give it back to you at nighttime. And so Jesus is being a little, using hyperbole, and he's saying, if anyone is, is gonna take your, the shirt off your back, literally, he's saying, don't just give them the shirt off your back, but also, give them your coat as well. And so, what he's saying, basically, is, is using an extreme, saying that you, are to be the kind of person that is to be humiliated for the sake of the gospel, not just in general, not just, you know, humiliate me, I love it, um, but for Christ. In other words, since he's being, um, since he's using hyperbole, the way that we can use this in contemporary setting is your home, your car, your clothes, your food, all of these things are not to be held on to, but instead to be used for the glory of God. Maybe you're willing to, to give away some of those things. Maybe you're willing to give away your home. You're allowing people in, but not your clothes, but not your food, but not your whatever. Or not just those things. Maybe <coughs> it's the car. I don't know. But um, all these things are gifts by, from God to, get, to, to be given to you in order to share the gospel with people and, and use those things for his glory. Next one. Um, third illustration. Um, if anyone forces you to go one mile, um, go with him two miles. Now, this is not, <laughs> this is not Jesus clearly pointing out that the U.S. is the only correct country out of all the 175 who says, you know, the metric system is the wrong system. You should use miles. And so everybody, no, it's not that at all. That would be, that's an, that's an illustration of like someone who takes verses out of context and see, Jesus said it's miles. It's not kilometers. So the metric system's wrong. Like that's the way, that's a wrong way to use the Bible. Um, just as an example, uh, more than likely, well, actually not more than likely, he didn't even say mile, but there was a, there was a, uh, there was a, a law that a Roman soldier could come to someone and they could say, you, I want you to carry my stuff for this particular amount of, of distance. And you had to, like, you didn't have a choice. You had to do it, but they were only allowed to let you carry it or make you carry it that particular amount. If, if, you, if they tried to make you carry it further, that was against the law. So they could only, allow, um, by law, make you carry it a certain distance. And Jesus is saying, if someone comes and says you to carry it for this one set of distance, this one mile, after you've gone that one mile, what you should do is carry it another mile. Not just out of spite, but cheerfully, as you're doing it, do that mile again, or even the third, or even the fourth, or even the fifth. It's not like at the second mile and be like, now I'm done. I showed you. It's keep going, keep going, keep going. The point, again, to say we are willing to be even humiliated for the sake of the gospel without revenge. Grace, when it's coming to our life, makes us seek to win other people to Christ by love. And it keeps us from feeling like we should be able to retaliate based on our rights. That's what grace does when it comes into our life. And then he transitions into this fourth illustration. And you can see there's a little bit of a difference. The first three are kind of where we've, we're kind of being done wrong. And this one isn't necessarily being done wrong. This is just showing us that if there's someone who's in need, we're to help. It says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Give to the one who begs and don't refuse the one who would borrow. And this is just saying to us here, that we are to give, not blindly. We're not to be just taken advantage of. Um, don't go bankrupt giving away food and money to those who would c continually take it away from you um, for them to go buy alcohol. Um, 
don't go bankrupt. Although maybe the first time you still do it. Maybe the second. There was a, uh, a story in one of the commentaries I was reading. Um, I think it was D.A. Carson. He was writing where he was studying in England where there were such soft-hearted guys at this particular seminary uh, who took these verses very seriously. And so those who would were the beggars, as this text says, or the borrowers, would come and stand outside the classrooms of these seminary students who were so soft-hearted because of these scriptures, and they would just take advantage of them continually, 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 until some of these seminary students were almost bankrupt. And then someone had to pull them apart and say, pull them apart, pull them to the side and say, rip them apart. They had to pull them to the side and say, um... I think you're misunderstanding the idea of these verses. Yes, there is a sense in which you should be givers, but maybe also have some discernment that God has given you money, which you're supposed to steward well. And I don't think you're stewarding it well, and you're not helping this guy if all he does is go and get drunk with your money. Maybe just say, hey, I'll buy you food. Come over here to the restaurant. What do you want? And I've had that, you know, I've had people give very specific orders. I don't want pickles, hold the onions, put the mayo on the mayonnaise, on the, like very specific with me. But they were very thankful to get the food. It was interesting. But um, the idea here is this. Uh, ESV Study Bible says it this way, and, and if you have one, you should see this. Um, Christians should help those who are truly in need, who are forced to beg, but they are not required to give foolishly. They are not required to give foolishly. So... Let's, let's say it this way. Um, whenever someone comes and begs or borrows from you, we don't have this mentality as Christians. We shouldn't have this mentality. So what's in it for me? What, what am I going to get out of this? You know, I'm going to help you. I'm going to scratch your back. You're going to scratch mine. That's just, that's just not the Christian mindset. Um, the Christian response to helping people who are needy is to give to them without requiring anything back. Now, if we, we look at this and we say, all right, what does this section have to do with the gospel? It's saying personal self-sacrifice, whether we've been done wrong or we're giving to someone, personal self-sacrifice always triumphs personal retaliation. That's the gospel. Jesus came and personally sacrificed him own, his, own, his own self his life, um, in order that those who were enemies of him would be redeemed or reconciled back to Christ. He could have easily retaliated, but he never did. Personal self-sacrifice triumphs personal retaliation. This is the message of Christ. Revenge is not ours. Instead, it's God's. So, in your own relationships, in your own relationships with your spouse whenever he or she says or does something to you where you feel the need immediately to strike back with words or hopefully, Lord willing, not actions. Um, retaliation is not who we are. Whenever at work you've been done wrong by your boss or been passed by for a, a, a raise or if in your, your uh, class you've been done wrong by your professor... Um, or whatever, in all your relationships that you have, whenever you've been done wrong, self-sacrifice triumphs self-personal um, retaliation. Let me, let me read to you why. Let me read to you why. And, and I'll, hopefully you'll see the gospel in this. This is Romans chapter 12, starting at 19. Starting at 19. It says, Beloved, and this is Paul, actually, if you look at this whole section here, um, 
in Romans 12, Paul's, it, it seems, kind of reading Matthew 5 and, and writing it over. You, know, you can see it in 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, um, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. We saw that in the Beatitudes. So I think that Paul's really heavily influenced by the Sermon on the Mount as he's writing this. But look at 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And here it is. Here it is. The most important little phrase of why retaliation is not ours. But leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. We're going to come back. Let me read the rest. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. But for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can see how similar that sounds to the Sermon on the Mount. But what I want to do is really concentrate on 19. Leave it to the wrath of God. And let's just let's just use the illustration, carry out the illustration of marriage, because this is where it's very difficult sometimes whenever our wife or our husband has said or done something to us and we feel, at least in my heart, um, the absolute need to retaliate immediately. Um, for those that are married, especially to Christians, we want to retaliate with some kind of punishment. But this says, leave it to the wrath of God. So the gospel is this. Whenever they've wronged you, the sin that they've wronged you with has already been paid for by Jesus. There is no further punishment that needs to be put on them for what they've done to you because Jesus has already paid for that punishment. So this is a real decision point whenever I have been, in my mind at least, been sinned against. I want to retaliate with some kind of punishment. But instead, when I, if I do, I'm not trusting the gospel. I'm saying, yeah, the atonement paid for those sins. However, I feel like there's a little bit extra that needs to happen because I feel really wronged here. And so, yeah, you, you paid for all the sins of my spouse, but this particular one where I feel wronged, I want to put a little bit of punishment on her because I don't feel the atonement was sufficient enough. So this is a moment to trust the gospel. In your mind, when you've been, when you've been done wrong, or at least if you have or you feel you have, especially in a relationship with your spouse, you trust the gospel. Even that was paid for by Jesus. And so instead, now I am free to love my wife whenever she's done something, even when I'm wrong. I'm free to respond, not feeling like we have to have an eye for an eye or we need to have an even Stephen. She does just as much as work as me around the house or her punishment has to fit mine. Instead, now I'm, I'm free to love her and serve her that's what it looks like as the gospel. And that applies to your working relationships, your roommates, or whatever. Every relationship you have. We're to leave everything to the wrath of God. D.A. Carson says, talking about our rights, he says, The legalistic mentality which dwells on retaliation and so-called fairness makes much of one's rights. We need to have my... I have rights. But he says this, what Jesus is saying in these verses, more than anything, is that his followers have no rights. That transforms everything. This doesn't mean that you're supposed to be a doormat by any means. It's saying not to retaliate. Not to retaliate. Sinclair Ferguson says, Be prepared to take a lowly position as, humble, as a humble servant. Be prepared to pay the price of imitating the example of Jesus by imitating the example of Jesus. So, when we're told 
that we are to resist the one who would do evil to us. The Lexus Talionis, the law of retaliation, says that eye for an eye. We have the right to have eye for an eye according to the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying, that's not, that's not the gospel. Because I've come to sacrifice myself where I, I, didn't, I didn't have to. And so since he is our example that we look towards, not just our savior, not just the one who saves us, but also who we look towards to see how we're supposed to react and how we're supposed to live. We're going to be like Christ here and not hold on to our rights, but instead serve humbly, being willing to be humiliated for the sake of the gospel. All right. Which brings us into our next one. As we see in 42, um, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow. There's a reason why we would do that. There's a reason why we would want to help and serve. And I want to give a little bit of distinction on why. Obviously, the answer is love, as we've seen through this next section. Um, but I want to give a little bit of um, discussion, if you will, on the word love. But let's go into this next section. It says, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I know it is very difficult to love everyone. It is very difficult. I'm not saying you have to like everyone, but it's still very difficult to love everyone. My... Uh, my, this is just me. Um, my hardest person to love is the non-driver that South Carolina seems to be absolutely full of. Um, you know, the guy that wants to drive slow in the left lane instead of the right lane. Or yesterday, I kid you not, Christy and I were driving down the road and there was a lady that was going really slow, of course, in the left lane because that's the, that's the slow lane in South Carolina. And so I'm driving down. I'm like, Christy, what is she doing? And we're driving. I look over. I said, Christy, I think she's doing her personal calendar. She has her steering wheel right here and she's got a pen in hand and a piece of paper and she's driving and, and she's talking to no one in the car. I guess she's doing her Bluetooth and she's just talking and looking at us. I said, she's doing her personal calendar. And she looks over there. She goes, Fudge, she's doing Sudoku. She's doing Sudoku. I was like, what? Are you serious? And so I stood beside her for a while, just like looking over at her. Fudge, don't look at her. Don't stand beside her. You know, that's my wife's voice. Whenever she's not wanting me to do something, it gets real high. Stop. She's going to see us. I'm like, she's doing Sudoku. Um, so for me, it is hard. It's hard for me to love the non-driver of South Carolina, which is just 95% of the drivers in South Carolina. 95% of you can't drive. I'm the five that can drive. In my mind. So anyway, and we're, we have, and honestly, like we have all over, the, all over our interactions with people, people that are difficult to love. They really are. They're difficult people to love in this world. I'm difficult to love, I know. You can just, don't ask her, but you could ask my wife. And she would say, yes, he's very difficult to love. But this is revolutionary here. Because first of all, you've heard it said... Now, Jesus, again, correcting misunderstandings of the Old Testament. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, Jesus is quoting here um, Leviticus 19.18, where it says, you should love your neighbor. But it doesn't say you should hate your enemy. This is just an inference that it kind of gathered up. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And Jesus is like, no, the Bible doesn't say at all, hate your enemy, ever. Je what? It says, instead, but I say to you, correcting your misunderstanding, he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. This is absolutely revolutionary. Um, the most common thing for us, 
this is just a little side note for us. I think this is all going to be true for us. The most common thing for Christians, especially in the polite South, is our enemies, those who are mean to us, what we're supposed to do is just be not um, loving, but what we want to do is just be morally neutral. So as morally neutral, we're just going to politely ignore those that would... Um, it's just the way we're raised. Like the people who persecute us, we don't really get into discussions. We kind of avoid uh, any kind of conflict. What we do is just we just politely ignore them. Uh, they ask us if we want to do something. Ah, I'm just not going to be able to today. Maybe I will. And that maybe just means no in the South. Um, <laughs> instead of just saying no. Um, someone pointed that out to me, and I appreciate that. Anyway, um, because I, I do that as well. I try to not be just... But here's the idea. We're not supposed to, in this text to just politely ignore our enemies. Instead, we are to be proactive in loving them and not just loving them, praying for them. The people that you want to politely ignore, Jesus is exhorting you to love them and to pray for them. Now, don't forget the context. This word persecute, as we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, should just like send off big bells and, and red sirens for us to point you back over to the Beatitudes at 5, 10 through 12. Why would we as Christians have people persecuting us? Let's just remind you, in case you weren't here in the Beatitudes, look at 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we see persecutes written there at least three times in those three verses. And the... The context is, he just told us that we're supposed to be peacemakers. Peacemakers are not just making peace and making people you know, be nice to each other, but it's also the ultimate form of peace, which is reconciling man to God and bringing them together. Peacemakers, in other words, evangelists, who reconcile the lost to Jesus. And so as we're peacemakers, as we are those who are bringing people to Jesus, we will have persecution. So, as we are being persecuted by our enemies... It's because you're supposed to be living a life on mission, reconciling the lost to Jesus. So just remember that that's what your life is supposed to be patterned after when persecution comes. It's not just, you know, you're just walking through and they persecute you. They yell at you because you wear a certain color shirt. It's because you're supposed to be reconciling lost to Jesus. So as they are persecuting you for the thing you hold most dear to your life, the gospel of Jesus... You could easily say, well, these are enemies. And he's saying, love them and pray for them. And I want to talk about love and pray. Um, first of all, what are we praying for? What is it that we're supposed to be praying for? Well, in the context of Matthew five ten through 12, we're not praying for them to stop being mean. We're praying for them to become followers of Jesus. So those who you consider an enemy... Your command of your Savior is to pray for the conversion of them, not politely ignore them. Second of all, we're also commanded to love them. We're also commanded to love them. Now, when we hear love your neighbor, love your enemy, first of us, we automatically usually start thinking of the how to love them. When I say like when I say, we need to go love the city, we automatically start thinking, even in this last week as we served, we naturally begin to think of all the things we can go do. How? We're supposed to do things. That's how we love them. How are we supposed to love them? We do stuff. And 
I'm not saying that that's not a part. That is a part of it, but it's more than just the how and it's more than just the doing, okay? I don't want you to automatically think every time I tell you you're supposed to love your enemy that that means, well, how am I supposed to do it and what am I supposed to do? Instead, I want you to think of this as well. Real emotions are supposed to be involved. Love isn't just action. Love is emotion. You're supposed to love them. Feel love for them. Pray for them and feel love for them. And you say, well, that's hard. I don't feel love for them. I feel (laughs) the opposite. Well, that's why we pray and ask Jesus to give us the love that we need for them. God, I don't feel love at all for this person who constantly persecutes me. As a matter of fact, I feel very angry towards them. Change that and put in love in my heart so that I can love them the way that Jesus wants me to love them. That's what we do. Love's not just an action, but it's emotion. And when we don't feel, and this is what I think, this is honestly what I think, whenever the pattern of your life over the last three months, the pattern of your life over the last six months, year, two years, seems to be where you don't have a desire to do um, service-oriented things towards people. You don't want to join in with us to carry out our mission to seek the lost in the city, to love our city through acts of service, but also by proclaiming the gospel. Maybe, maybe it's because you don't feel emotions of love for people in the city. That's why you don't serve. Why well, don't I ever serve? I don't ever feel like it. Maybe you don't love people. And if that's the case, then you and I, if we have that, need to repent. We need to fall down on our knees and say, God, that's true. I find myself feeling like I need to do stuff just to get it done because I feel better, but I don't, I don't see in my heart the reason why I'm doing this is because I, I love them. I really love them. And so maybe you and I need to find some places in our life where we need to repent of that. But look at this. 45. God loves His enemies. God loves His enemies. It says, so that you may be Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And look how He loves His enemies in the second half of 45. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends His rain on the just and the unjust. So we can see this is what's commonly called as common grace. Um, This is just grace of God being given to unbelievers in the same measure, in the same kind as being given to believers. They get to enjoy the sun. They get to enjoy the rain. And so we see here that God loves His enemies. He gives them common grace. They get to enjoy food. They get to enjoy marriage. They get to enjoy children. They get to enjoy all the things of this earth. This is common grace. They get to breathe right now. Um, The moment, the moment that we... When we're born into sin, the moment we rebel willingly against God, the righteous judgment of Him could be death right then. So every breath that we get after that is a gift of common grace. And so He is being loving towards His enemies. Now, He's not just um, loving to those who are unbelievers, but He's also loving to those who will become believers. That's what we see in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, then he saved us. 
So we see God demonstrating, God demonstrating love and common grace to those who will remain unbelievers always, and then God demonstrating love to those who are enemies of Him who will become believers. So God's very loving towards all of His enemies. So here's the thing I want us to see. Here's number six. The sixth antithesis is this. Christians' love for others is to be patterned after the Father's love. Christians' love for others is to be patterned after the Father's love. And His love (laughs) is absolutely extravagant. It is on the just and the unjust. It is on the good and the evil. Every person receives the love of the Father and common grace. And even us who are enemies who become followers of God receive His love, salvific love, saving love, saving grace that opens up our eyes, regenerates our heart to the beauty of the gospel, and we respond in faith, trusting Christ, and now we are children of His. So His children and those who will not become His children become His. Now, here's the question. Um, How do we know that it's supposed to be patterned after the Father's love? The first half of 45 is our answer. Look at 45. It says, pray for those who persecute you. And then he says, so that you may be sons. And you can fill in the word daughters there. Um, sons of your father who is in heaven. Our love is to be patterned after him. And if it's patterned after him, we show ourselves as believers in Jesus. We show ourselves to be true sons or daughters of the father. Um, and here's, here's the way to think about it. Um, fathers and sons are generally like... I have someone that comes to me all the time, especially when my son Aiden and I, we've both gotten haircuts, and he goes, man, Fudd, you look just like Aiden. And I'm like, well, I think you have that backwards. I think you mean to say that Aiden looks just like me. But he goes, no, you look just like Aiden when y'all have y'all's haircut. Um, It's definitely, he's got it backwards. But the point is this. um, When you look at me, you see my son as well. Or when you look at my son, I, I got it backwards. When you look at my son, you see me as well. And that's the whole idea. Whenever someone looks at you, they are supposed to be able to see your father. Whenever they see the way you love them, whenever they see that, that points them on to be able to see the father and his love for them. So we are supposed to look like any child that belongs to a father will be like that father. So if you belong to God the father, you will be like him and your love will be like his. It will be to all people no matter what's been done to you. And then he says this. He compares in 46 and 47 this idea of being a son to two other things. Um, And he's saying, you're not supposed to be like these other guys. Um, 46, for if you love those who love you, just the ones who love you, those are the ones you return the love, what what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, in this context, in the Jewish mind, there was a deep hatred for the tax collectors. And so to say... Oh, guess what, uh, Jewish person? Your love, just like the tax collector. Oh, that's just hitting on them so hard. They're like, that's going to enrage them. And then he goes even further and says, and if you greet only your brothers, and we we should be willing to greet not just our brothers, but anyone. If you greet only your brothers, what... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Again, like, whoa, you're calling me a tax collector and basically a pagan? I'm a son, I'm a, I'm a Jew here. And you're saying that I'm, I'm just like a tax collector or a Gentile? 
And then he wraps it up with this crazy, crazy verse in 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And as I said, that's just not the the conclusion of this text of 43 through 47. 48 is the conclusion of the entire six antithesis. So. Sinclair Ferguson says that the Beatitudes We're not just ordinary people. We're not just like the tax collectors. We're not just like the Gentiles. Those who are in Christ are sons and daughters of God. And he says this, The Beatitudes have confirmed to us that we are not ordinary men or women. Therefore, what more, talking about in regard to love, what more are are we doing that doesn't just liken us to everyone else? What more are you doing as a daughter or as a son of the Father who is supposed to reflect that to this world, what more are you doing to show the world that you're not just a tax collector, that you're not just a Gentile? Is your life reflecting any kind of love at all? So as we conclude, here's the question for us. When an unbelieving world looks at your life, specifically the love that you're reflecting back based on the gospel, based on the love that you have been given from God, transforming you and making you a follower of Christ, are you reflecting back them to them love that looks like the Father's or just love that looks like a tax collector or a Gentile? To your roommates, to your co-workers, to your professor who irritates you, to your wife or your husband. Whose love are you looking like? The gospel is absolutely imperative to be able to do this. You're not going to self-manufacture God's love inside of you back to someone if you're not a believer. The only way that we're going to keep the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, is if we are truly keeping the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The only way you keep the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is putting your faith in Christ. Believing in the gospel. That's how you can therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Because as we've seen in Romans 3, no one does righteous. Not one. None of us are going to find ourselves righteous. But we can receive, literally receive, the perfection of God when it comes to our justification and be declared completely righteous if we put our faith in the gospel if we believe in Christ's work on the cross for us. And so this righteousness that we're supposed to have, this perfection that we're supposed to have, it exceeds just an external keeping of the laws. This is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. We're not just externally upholding laws. I got to do this. I got to do that. It's not it. We can't do that. That's the truth. You can never keep the law on your own strength. It has to come from someone else. It has to come from God inside of us. God in us, changing us, where we're not just merely keeping the externals where we will, but also now our heart is changed and we are following him as a worshiper. All of the things that he's telling us here are acts of worship now. Let me conclude with this. We read this text as we were praying this morning, and I think that it's just absolutely um, perfect for us as we conclude. This is Colossians chapter 1. I'm in verse 27. To them, 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory in this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God in the gospel has not just started saving Jews, but also started saving Gentiles, the whole world. And he's, this is a mystery, which is it used to be God and me. Back in the Old Testament, you had God, Moses could say, God's with me. David could say, God's with me. But there's this new mystery, which is no longer God and me, but now Christ in you. You have Christ by the Spirit in you. Jesus Christ by His Spirit is in you. To them God chose to make known among the Gentiles, which is the riches of His glory, this mystery which is Christ in you, and the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then He says, We proclaim Him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So we have Christ in us, and we our goal is to teach everyone and to <clears throat> lift up everyone, mature in Christ to God. Now, how in the world are we going to do that? Honestly, how am I going to do that? Because when I wake up in the morning, that's not what I feel like doing. I feel like rolling back over or immediately be, being um, angry or doing my own thing, doing my own deal, serving King Fudd at the very beginning. But I don't need to serve King Fudd. I need to serve King Jesus in the very beginning of the day. The answer is in 29. For this I toil, struggling with all of His energy that works powerfully in me. You're, you're not going to be able to do it. And in the end, whenever you've done it, you look back and you say, I didn't do that, God did it. The way that you're going to willingly not retaliate, but be willing to be humiliated for the sake of the gospel. The way that you're going to be, with, be able to withstand persecution, the way that you're going to be able to love your enemies is because you have all of His energy working powerfully in you. And that's only by the gospel. That's only by believing in Jesus. And then whenever that happens, your life has been transformed. And now you're free to be a loving person because of what He's done for you. So as we go into this time of, of response, um, we like to respond in song with the large portion of our worship after we've studied and, Lord willing, heard from Him. Where is it that maybe you need to repent? Where is it that you're not being loving? Where is it that your love looks more like a Gentile or a tax collector than a son or daughter? Where is it that you're demanding retaliation rather than being a humble servant. And spend a little bit of time reflecting and confessing and then stand and let's worship Jesus for what He's done for us. That He's freed us up to not demand our rights but put Himself in us by His Spirit. We have Jesus and we struggle every day but it's by His energy because of belief in Him. Because of His death and resurrection. So, as you confess and as you pray, whenever we're done, stand and let's worship together. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Him, I invite you to come down and talk to me. I'd love to be, the, be able to give the chance to lead you to a knowledge of Christ, to pray with you. If you just need prayer, come talk to me. Um, also, after the service, we'll have people down front that you can pray with. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this time where we can study your word. God, forgive me for it. I know the times in my life where even it seems almost throughout the whole day that your gospel doesn't affect me the way it should. My emotions aren't stirred because of the forgiveness I have in Christ as often as they should be. And I want them to be. And I know that that doesn't save me more. I know that faith is what saves because of grace. But Lord, I want to feel it. I want to know it. I want to walk in it more deeply than I do. And I pray that for my friends here. I pray that that's their heart's cry. That they find themselves reflecting your love. Not demanding their own rights, but giving up their rights and being sacrificial like Christ. And that these things aren't based on mere outward conformity to the things that you're telling us to do, but a heart change. And we respond and do these things as acts of worship. We get to do them. We don't have to do them. Be with us now as we worship. And if anyone here, God, doesn't know Jesus, I pray that you would save them this morning. Regenerate their hearts and help them see the beauty of the gospel. I love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.